welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 27. Yeah. Guess we're going to have to take a second to discuss what we're exploring today, and another moment for me to explain how we got here. Now, as you may remember, a few weeks back I told you that you were going to decide what today's topic was going to be. I had quite a few submissions, but here's what happened. I had a lot of folks who gave me an idea of what they wanted. The problem is, no single idea ever got more than one vote. So, in the most American of selection processes, I just decided to go with the first idea I got. Now, that being said, I had four other ideas that came in that I really, really liked. I liked them so much, in fact, that two of them were already on my long list of topic ideas for future episodes. So, here's what I decided to do. With Christmas about a month away at this point, I'm going to use three of the four topics as possible Christmas present ideas for you. Next week, we're going to talk about role-playing games for younger kiddos. In two weeks, we're going to look at role-playing games based on literature. In three weeks, we're going to check out role-playing games based on fandoms. And then one month from today, we're going to look at a game I originally had on the schedule for early next year, Pendragon. So, that's the consolation prize for some ideas that didn't make today's show. With that being said, what exactly is today's topic? Well, let's back up a step and do this all official-like. Episode 27, Races, Classes, and Monsters of Dungeons & Dragons. Hey, if George Thorogood can do one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer, I sure as hell can do three things in one episode. But let's be real about it. There's no way I can talk about all of the classes, races, or monsters of D&D in one episode unless I want to be talking nonstop for the next couple of months. There's just way too much stuff there. So what I decided to do is this. I'm going to pick one D&D race, one D&D class, and one D&D monster. I'm going to talk about its influence and its evolution throughout the history of the game, and I'm going to try to drop some other knowledge in there as I go along. So specifically today, we're going to examine the halfling, the rogue, and the Tarrasque. (laughs) Oh, and if enough of you like this type of show, I'm down to do more of them. You know what you need to do if you like it. All right, so enough of my general ramblings. Let's get this tour started. Halflings are probably best known as hobbits from Tolkien's epic works. However, the word halfling comes from the Scottish word hoflin, which means an awkward, rustic teenager who is neither man or boy and is therefore half of both. Another word for halfling is hobbledohoi or hobby. The German surname Hebling has a similar origin, but getting into the entomology of that is an entire show of its own. I should note that the usage of the word halfling predates Tolkien, so I guess it would be correct to say that there were halflings in the world long before Tolkien set his epic saga to print. Halflings are typically shown to be similar to humans, only about half as tall. However, as opposed to dwarves, who are typically shown to be about the same height, halflings aren't usually quite as stocky. Now, regardless of the source, halflings typically are shown with slightly pointed ears. They're also known in many sources to have hair-covered feet, which they don't cover with socks or shoes. They also tend to be stealthy and lucky. Now, I'm going to assume if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you've at the very least seen the Lord of the Rings movies, if not read the books, so the depiction of hobbits should come to you fairly quickly. 
but in other fantasy novels, this isn't the case. Terry Brooks uses halfling as a term for characters who have one human parent and one parent of another race, like an elf human. Jack Vance uses the halfling term for beings like fairies, trolls, and ogres, who are composed of both magical and earthly substance. For our purposes, however, we're going with the Hobbit-style halfling, for the most part. Now, as we've discussed in previous episodes, when Gary Gygax was first putting the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons together, he specifically referred to his halflings as hobbits. Needless to say, a threat of a lawsuit from the estate of Tolkien caused him to change the name back, but the description is definitely the same. They were these short, squat humanoids with hairy feet. So, yeah, picture Frodo Baggins from Lord of the Rings as the halfling Gygax was plugging into his game. Halflings, along with other non-humans, didn't get a lot of love in the original D&D. While they were a playable race, they were both limited in the level their character could reach, as well as the class they could take. For the record, the level limit was four, and the only class they could take was the Fighting Man, which was later simplified to Fighter. Now, it should be noted that they did have some advantages. They had magic resistance and accuracy with ranged weapons, but it's been noted in multiple articles over the years that the wording of the accuracy is so poor, it's nearly impossible to determine how much of an advantage this was supposed to be. When Greyhawk dropped in 1976, Halflings got a new class they could play in. It was the Thief, which we'll expand on in a few. The rules also added that Halflings had no limit to their level in this class, which was the beginning of Halflings having a stealthy nature in D&D. It would also explain why, for the longest time, halflings were synonymous in certain gaming circles with thieves. After all, if you've only got two classes you can play and one has a level cap while the other one doesn't, (laughs) there isn't much of a debate in my mind about which one you're going to play. When the AD&D D&D split took place, halflings appeared in AD&D, but they were still limited in class level if they were fighters, though in fairness that cap increased to six. However, they could still be thieves and have no level cap. As part of the new rules, halflings got a few new things. They got a bonus to their dexterity, but a penalty to strength. By the way, this was the case for every non-human race in AD&D. They got a bonus to something, but a penalty to something else. Halflings in this edition also had magic resistance and poison resistance, and they could surprise enemies with stealth. When AD&D got its second edition in 1989, Halflings got another class they could play, the Cleric. Yes, the Cleric had been around for a while, but this was the first time Halflings could play the class in official rules. Of course, they also had a level cap, but at least you could be something other than a thief or a fighter and be a Halfling. In addition to the other bonuses they got in first edition, Halflings were also granted a plus one bonus to attacks with thrown weapons and slings in second edition. This referred back to the bonuses that they'd been granted in the original version of D&D, but codified and explained in better detail. When the D&D world got shaken up in 2000 with third edition, Halflings got a makeover. No longer were they the short Tolkien-esque humanoids of old. Now they were depicted as smaller humans at least so far as their proportions. If you check out the artwork for 3rd edition and 3.5, you can see this change in print for yourself. Now, some players complain that this streamlining took some of what made Halflings unique out of the game. However, that change came with something huge. 
Halflings could now play any class in the game and had no level limits. So while your halfling might not look like Frodo, he could be a wizard like Gandalf, if you so chose. Third edition brought a number of other changes for our halfling friends. They got bonuses to saving throws, sneaking, listening, climbing, jumping, and saving throws versus fear. They kept the skill with thrown weapons, and 3.5 added a bonus with slings. They also kept the improved dexterity and reduced strength that they'd gotten from second edition. They also got low light vision and were considered to be small sized, which gave them advantages to armor class, attack, and hiding. Of course, those advantages came with some disadvantages, which included the kinds of weapons they could wield, but for many, it was well worth the change. Fourth edition D&D, which dropped in 2008, made more changes to the halfling. First off, they got bigger. Their height averaged four feet and their weight was around 70 pounds. This was about a foot and 25 pounds more than third edition. Why this was done has never really been made clear. And their ability bonuses changed too. Halflings got bonuses to both dexterity and charisma, but no longer had the negative to strength. They were still small-sized with the restrictions that came with that. They also kept their fear resistance, as well as their nimbleness and thievery advantages, plus they gained skill at avoiding enemy attacks. However, their superior sight and hearing, as well as their skills with ranged weapons and slings, were the cost for those advantages. That being said, though, Dungeons & Dragons loves its character changes, and the halfling would change yet again. For 5th edition, the halfling shrank back down to its traditional size, about 3 foot tall and around 40 pounds. They kept the dexterity bonus and the resistance to fear. They also gained an increased luck, which is its own racial ability for halflings in this edition. I can speak for my own game when I say that halflings are very much still alive and well in D&D. In fact, right now at my table, I've got a halfling druid and a halfling artificer in my 5e game, and they bring a definite spirit to the session. Of course, I'm dying to hear the epic story of the halfling barbarian, so if you've got one of those, hit me up. I'll either put it on this podcast or on the YouTube channel. So with our halfling discussion at a close, let's move on to the rogue or thief, depending on your version of D&D. Now, thieves and rogue types have been a part of human history for as long as there's been human history. Libraries are full of stories of thieves, from Alibaba to Robin Hood and everyone in between. Bilbo Baggins would also be an example of a rogue or thief, especially since he chose to palm the one ring instead of getting rid of it or just leaving it where the hell it was. In discussing the rogue in D&D, we're reminded that this class did not exist when D&D was originally printed. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we got the Thief as part of the Greyhawk Supplement in 1976. It was at that time the ability to search for and disarm traps was brought to the table as an official skill or ability, along with a number of the other skills the Rogue is still known for. So the question begs to be asked, what did players do before the Thief came along? First off, I wasn't gaming at that time. I know I'm old, but I'm not quite that old. I reached out to a number of old school gamers on Twitter and I got a number of responses, but, but overall it was agreed that before the thief came along, it was up to the fighters to use a 10 foot pole to check for traps in the floor of a dungeon. And the idea was you just trip it, move past and continue on your way. If there was a trap on a chest, you just have to figure out how to set it off without killing everybody in the party. Now I know that's not true for all groups and I'm sure your group at the time probably had a good way to handle this, but this is what others have told me. There are also those who have noted that rather than create an entire class whose job it is to do these things, why couldn't these features just be spread out over the other classes? 
It's a legit question, but since the rogue does exist, we're just going to go with that. AD&D codified the thief rules, making the thief an official core class. Also, it was the only class that any race could play and advance to its maximum level. The thief got a little extra bit of love in this edition as well, as it got a D6 for hit dice, as opposed to the D4 it had gotten in the Greyhawk setting. I mean, that would make sense. After all, if you're going to be using a character to search for and deal with traps, you might want that character to have a few more hit points than the squishy magic user in the back of the party. Just saying. One other cool thing about this edition is that the thief was the class that leveled up the quickest. I should note that for a very long time in D&D, each class leveled up at a different pace. Yeah, that was another headache for DMs to deal with, but I'll complain about that more another time. Anyway, the trade-off for leveling quickly was that the thief's abilities, like locate traps, disarm traps, move silently, so on and so forth, which were all percentile die-based, by the way, increased at a relatively slow pace. What this meant was that it could typically take about 10 levels or so before most thieves would feel comfortable enough with their skills to use them on any sort of a consistent basis. Or if you were me, you just created about a dozen thieves at one time during the creation process and then just swapped in new ones each time the previous one blew himself up. Or got smashed under a huge rock. Or got blown out the 10th story tower window. Or maybe my luck just really sucked bad. That, that could very well be the case. Now, second edition AD&D fixed some of these flaws. Also, this was the first edition in which the term rogue was used. It was meant to encompass all of the possible archetypes for the class, like the burglar, the pickpocket, the assassin, and, and the other ones like that. Second edition allowed thieves to specialize in skills. This meant they could get pretty good at a couple of skills within a couple of levels, which made them more likely to actually use their skills. And as with pretty much everything in second edition, thieves got their own separate book, which fleshed out the class with more ideas, more skills, more archetypes. You're getting the idea. So, of course, everything changed when third edition came around. In third edition, the class officially became known as the Rogue, and in my opinion, this was a positive change. It gives the player more room to play the character the way they see fit. You want to be a cat burglar? Do that. Do you want to be an expert in finding people that don't want to be found? Do that. You want to be the expert in finding and disarming traps? Do that. Third edition really allowed for this kind of specialization, and the skill point system is the real key to it. Skill points were new to third edition, and the rogue got more of them than any other class. Of course, the rogue had more class-specific skills than any other class, but again, this just allowed for more of a specialization of the rogue. Third edition also got rid of the percentile die rolls for skill checks, which was a great advantage for rogues, as well as making most traps findable by rogues only. Again, it gave them a reason to be there. Rogues also got the ability to sneak attack, which increased the attack damage they did when their opponent was flanked by another member of the party. Fourth edition was set up with mechanical setups for each of the classes, and the rogue was no different. One of the setups was the cinematic rogue, that swashbuckling, suave character who could make off with your slice of pizza while you were eating it without you ever realizing it. The other was the thief, who was more of a down-and-dirty safecracker. Fifth edition goes back to more of the third edition roots. The rogue class gets more skill proficiencies than any other class, and it has three archetypes in the core book that encompass most of the traditional rogue builds, the thief, the assassin, and the new arcane trickster. 
That third option brings spells into the rogue's arsenal, which, by the way, there'd been some people doing before with homebrew rules. Now, I do need to admit that supplements that have come out since that core player's book have added additional archetypes, but I'll hold to my previous statement. If you've got a rogue type you want, D&D has probably developed an archetype for it. Again, I've played rogues for a very long time, and as I mentioned, I currently have rogues in my 5th edition campaign. Thanks to the way the 5th edition rules are set up, you could have a group of 5 each play a rogue, but none of them be the exact same type of character. That's the beauty of the class, and also the flexibility of the rules. Now, I do have to say that some of this flexibility comes with headaches, but we'll talk more about that when we discuss 5th edition of D&D later on down the line. Alright, I promised you a race, a class, and a monster. I've done the first two, so I guess we need to get to the third. But what monster should I talk about, he says, even though he knows he already said earlier on. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I gotta talk about the creature that is so controversial, its appearance in a game will cause an equal amount of swearing and players leaving the room pissed off. I'm speaking, of course, of the Tarrasque. I don't personally know of another monster in any role-playing game that causes as much controversy with its mere appearance than the Tarrasque. For the uninitiated, the Tarrasque is an enormous abomination. Throughout the various editions of the game, it's maintained the rough size of an ancient dragon, which, for the uninitiated, is pretty damn big. However, what makes it controversial is the fact that it's impossible to kill. It has resistances to almost everything, including most spells. And, should you manage to get it down to zero hit points, it either disappears to rest or it requires a wish spell to kill, depending on the edition you're playing. On top of that, the amount of damage a Tarrasque can cause in a single round can take out party members of equal level. Yeah. So when a Tarrasque is utilized in a game, it either means you're playing a power gamer's table or your DM is just looking to end your game absolutely, positively, tonight. Just saying. Alright, so what's the history of this beast? Well, there's a French legend about the Tarrasque, but I haven't been able to find a good English translation of this. So if our French-speaking listeners can provide us with one, hit me up and we'll do a video on it. In the world of D&D, THE Tarrasque, which is what I should have been saying from the beginning since there's only ever one, is supposed to be the most feared creature in existence. Some believe it was created by the gods as a way to remake the world when the time comes, which means that if it's loose, the gods intend to end the world and start anew. I've also read articles where some game writers have offered the thought of a planet inhabited entirely by Tarasks. No. Just... No. No thank you. I could say more, but I'm really trying not to swear. The Tarrasque has been part of D&D since the beginning, with its size and statistics being adjusted throughout the editions to keep it the most powerful being in existence. If you don't believe me, create a party of 4 or 5th 20th level characters, give them magic equipment equal to that level, drop in the Tarrasque, play it by the rules, and let me know how that worked out for you. Your party might pull it off, but they won't do it unscathed, I can assure you. So the question would come up then, why would you put a creature like that into a game? In my opinion, I don't think the Tarrasque was really intended to be a creature for characters to encounter. I think it was meant to be a story, like the Boogeyman, for characters to fear, causing them to be a little more careful with their actions. 
However, with some players, if you present them with something, they want statistics for it because they're going to try to find a figure out a way to kill it. Thus, the Tarrasque has statistics that make it nearly impossible to kill. And those players only heard the nearly impossible part of what I just said. To any DM out there wondering, should they use that monster? I say this. No. Nothing else needs to be said. Except to say that with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, as I promised, we're going to take a look at role-playing games targeted for the younger kiddos. If you've got some younger kids in your family and you want to introduce them to gaming, this episode should give you some good ideas. Thanks to at for the Loot Gaming on Twitch for this week's topic. At for the Loot Gaming is a game streaming channel and he plays all kinds of different games. So follow him on Twitter and he'll let you know when he's going live or check out his channel for some of the stuff he's already done. And uh, let him know you heard about him from us. I need to thank the folks at Pixabay.com for the music we use for our intro and outro. If you're looking for some good royalty-free music for your show or project, I cannot say enough good things about them. Of course, you deserve the lion's share of the thanks. You are the reason I keep doing this, and I'm going to keep doing this for as long as I've got topics to discuss, so thank you. You can follow us on Facebook, Roleplaying History Podcast, Twitter, at RolePlayingP. We, of course, have a YouTube channel, Roleplaying History Podcast. Y- you know what to do when you get there. If you'd like to send us some emails, please do so, RolePlayingHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and somebody asked me about, you know, I said I was going to put video of die rolling up last week. Well, see, here's what happened. I couldn't find a video of somebody using old school dice. It might just be I didn't go far enough down the YouTube rabbit hole, but between job and and kid and podcast and grandson, I, I, dude, I don't have the time to go that deep into rabbit hole. However, I am working on something else, and it is something evil. And when I get it done, I will let you know. Next week, though, I'm working on a tour of role-playing games for younger kids. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.